segment of scripture. So if you'd like, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. Uh, we're going to pick it up at around verse 5. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you. I want to make sure you guys have God's uh, Word on hand, Scripture that you can read. Uh, again, to accompany your regular reading and teaching that we've been doing on Sunday mornings through this particular book. Uh, I've created a resource guide uh, filled with lots of, I think, helpful um, items for you to be able to read, memorize, study this particular book together. Uh, just scan the little QR code. There's one right there or um, find that uh, as a resource. And right there should be the very first thing. You can download it, keep it, share it if you want. It's totally whatever you would like to do. That's fine. Uh, hopefully it'll be a benefit to you. Uh, so we've been in a series in the book of First Peter, uh, making our way through. I'll jump into the teaching element of it in just a moment. But first, let's just tune our hearts to the reading of the scripture. Let the scripture itself have its impact upon us. Today, we're going to mainly be focusing on verses 8 and 9. Uh, but I want to get a little bit of a context. We're going to start at verse 5. Uh, Peter's writing to a community of followers of Jesus that were scattered around the region of Asia Minor. Uh, these were people that had never seen Jesus. Jesus. They were at the same time trying to be faithful to follow Jesus in a culture and a society that was deeply hostile to the claims and the ways and the life of Jesus, not too much unlike our own. The temptation for them was, do we be faithful to Jesus and then incur the wrath of culture around us? Or do we satisfy culture around us and live unfaithfully to Jesus? And I suggest to you, that's exactly where you and I find ourselves Today, listen to the wisdom of Peter through his inspired words. Verse 5, chapter 1. By God's power, we are all being guarded through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the latter time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by a variety of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold. Even gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 are the main ones I want to focus on. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you have faith and confidence in him. And you rejoice in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is the word of the Lord. Before you seat, uh, sit down, let me uh, go ahead and pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. We come to you, Lord, just with hearts that just say we want to pause and receive all that you have. And at the same time, God, we want to give back to you honor and praise and worship. And lay at your feet, God, our burdens, our anxiety, our sin those proclivities that drive us away from you, Lord. We lay them at your feet. Renew our minds and our thoughts and our hopes and our affections upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So 
So Peter, as I mentioned earlier, he's writing to a community of people that are trying to be faithful to Jesus, trying to live with a loyalty to Jesus. Before I jump into that, one of the things that he identifies over and over again or on repeat is the subject matter of suffering. Uh, in In order to live faithfully to Jesus, for them, it meant that they will encounter some degree of suffering. They will encounter hostility from the culture around them. Um, and that, that's not shocking because in reality, for you to be very faithful to Jesus today, it's going to cause you to be out of step with culture at large. That's not shocking. Let me just, let me, let me restate that. If we live in California, which is, you know, deeply secularized. Um, California, believe it or not, when we even think of like code of ethics, California and secular culture has a code of ethics. I don't know if you know that or not. I don't know if you've ever really even given too much thought about that. But there's a code of ethics. There's a code of morality that secular-minded world around us has and projects. And if you align with that code of morality, you're, you're, you're good. You, you will not be canceled, right? If you violate that code or if you come up with a different code or one that's out of step with that or you say the wrong thing at the wrong time or the right thing in the wrong way or whatever, the point of the matter is uh, at some point you will face hostility from the broader culture at large. But the same is exactly what the Christians were facing. They were trying to be faithful to Jesus, which set them out of step with the broader culture at large. And this brought challenge for them, just like it would bring challenge to you or I, because they were in danger of being canceled by broader culture. They wouldn't have called it that, of course, but that's kind of the way that we would see it. They would have been canceled. They would have been shoved to the margins or put out or in some cases even killed. And this is exactly what was happening to them. So when you find yourself in a place like that of conflict or hostility or boiling water, the temptation then becomes stronger and more centralized to how do we just fly under the radar? How do we keep a low profile? In other words, how do we compromise? How do we live in a way that's less you know, astute or less... Uh, committed to Jesus or less loyal to Jesus. That's the danger. And what Peter's trying to say is don't, don't go that route. Don't deny, don't defy, don't walk away from this God that loves you. And his whole point is that, yes, you will incur wrath of the culture. Yes, it will come. You will be out of step with them. When you're out of step with some, you will bring about discord, disharmony. Yes, it will take place. But in the end, where he keeps trying to recycle this narrative back to, in the end, when Jesus comes again, and he will come again, you will be rewarded with deep sense of satisfaction and glory and honor and praise that Jesus himself will bring for you. And in that day, If you live for that praise, that honor, it means a delayed gratification. Do you get this, right? Because everything in our culture right now is about immediate gratification. Get Get satisfied now. Get the praise. Get the adulation. Get the recognition. Get the affirmation now. And what Peter is saying, no, learn to live in a way that embraces the future as something that's yet to come. Because on that day, what Peter is trying to remind these people, I promise you, you will never, ever regret it throughout all eternity. To receive the praise and the honor and glory of Jesus, even if 
for a little while. Right now, that means you are shunned and shoved to the margins and canceled. So one of the things that he wants for us to see is part of this journey involves suffering, challenge, hardship, shoved off to the margins. It's just the way it works. C.H. Spurgeon, he was a preacher of the 1900s, from the 1900s, actually mid-1900s, late, 19, late 1800s. Um, and he said this, the steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. Amid the ashes of pain lie the sparks of joy, ready to flame up when breathed upon by the Holy Spirit. I love this image because what he's saying is that, yes, there's suffering and hardship, and that brings tears, and yet that's contrasted with this deep sense of joy. And this is a paradox. The fact of the matter is, these two seem very opposite. On the one hand, you've got deep sense of joy, elations, elation, satisfaction. On the other hand, flip side of the coin, you have suffering. And the suffering that these people are encountering can be summed up in the word rejection. Rejection. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's the word that we love to hate. It's the word that all of us, at varying degrees, within our own life and experience, we've, we've encountered this. It's one of the reasons I would even add uh, the whole concept of peer pressure. It's, it's real, by the way. It's, and it's not just something that happens when you're in junior high, that awkward stage of junior high, like, I just did it because I was peer pressure. No, you still do it when you're 28 years old. You still do it when you're 45 years old. You never stop doing it. And there's a reason for it. Because somewhere tucked within, underneath the dark crevices of this is a deep desire to be accepted. The flip side of acceptance is rejection. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want our friend group to alienate us, to shove us off. Some of us have experienced that for reasons that you didn't deserve. And it's deeply traumatized you to this very day. Even though a rejection that may have happened two decades ago, you still carry the scars from that. On the one hand, you look whole as a whole human being. But on the other hand, inside of you is this deep ache and pain and yearning and longing for wholeness because of a rejection that you encountered. And this is, this is very real. This is what the people to whom Peter's writing to is saying, you are encountering the reality of rejection. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond? What role are you going to take in the context of a culture that's saying, follow this path, live according to this code, follow this moral, or if you don't, we will cancel and reject you. And that may mean the loss of your privilege, your prestige, your money, your wealth, your family business, your legacy, your home, your whatever. And the temptation is to go soft, to go absent without leave in your commitment and loyalty to Jesus. And what Peter's saying is don't do that. Yes, they're suffering, but at the same time, there will also be deep joy that will accompany that suffering. And here's why. Here's what he says. Listen to this, and again, this will get in the actual mean corpus and body of the teaching. Um, is He says, because of Jesus, the person of Jesus. The reality is, is that we live in a world where 
whatever it is that you place confidence in, and we all have different things in which we place confidence, or different things that we find that we place our confidence in. For some, you're like wired to just constantly want a relationship. So as soon as you break up with somebody, you're like right smack back into another relationship. You just, you're, you're in a cycle. You can't go over a very long time being alone from somebody because you're wired that way. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that, that we have different things that we long for. For some of you, it's like job. You're constantly cycling through jobs because you want samples of lots of different things. And again, I'm not, I'm not ascribing any moral reality according to this. I'm just simply saying it, there are different things that we place confidence in. And our hope is that by giving ourselves entirely over to this thing, whether it be a relationship, a job, money, uh, desire, downloading porn, or whatever it is, whatever this thing is that we give ourselves to, our hope is, is that it will bring a deep sense of elation and joy in that moment. In other words, if you want to go a little bit step further and kind of put religious language to it, what it does, whatever we place our confidence in will either be our greatest salvation, it will be the saving of our soul, or it will be our hell. But the claim of scripture is that everything, everything in this life, no matter how good or holy or wonderful or aesthetically beautiful it is, whatever it is, apart from Jesus, it has a, uh, an expiration date, has shelf life. Limited mileage. In other words, whatever it is that you give yourself to that's not Jesus, at some point, the limited mileage that it offers you, at some point, when it stops, when it breaks, it's moving from a state of glory where it's awesome and good and life-giving to a state where it no longer satisfies. And the fact of the matter is, is that Many, especially marketers in our world, they, they know this. They know this is how the whole marketing industry works. In fact, um, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but I'll give it to you right now. Uh, the BBC, if you're familiar with uh, this, they actually several years ago did an entire series. It's like a four-part series. It's like an hour long each. I would highly, highly recommend checking this out. It's called The Century of Self. The Century of Self. And the very first episode in this is actually called Happiness Machines. Happiness machines. The big idea is that we as human beings are happiness machines. Pause. Think about that phrase. Happiness machines. We love. We need. We are dependent upon. We long for happiness. We'll give ourselves to whatever it is that gives us even one small iota of happiness. And then we give it. We need our fix. And the claim of scripture is that anything that we are going to to get our fix from other than Jesus, at some point, when it expires, we'll continue to give ourselves to that thing, expecting it to give us back joy or happiness or heaven, and at some point it will fail us. And when it fails, we are left with this deep ache in our soul, where oftentimes what we do is we just transfer that longing to something else. And when that thing runs its course and fails to deliver, we run to another thing. And for many of us, this is just the course of our life, thing after thing after thing, because we're happiness machines. And what the writer Peter is trying to say is that we're wired for this. We're wired for joy. But where you derive your sense of joy from absolutely matters. So his whole point is this, is that love and trust kind of form the 
fabric of this relationship with Jesus. And he says, look, you guys have never seen Jesus, and yet you love him. You guys have never seen Jesus, and you still don't even see him. You've still never had an encounter with Jesus sitting at a meal, enjoying a conversation with him, listening to him preach. You've never had this like personal one-on-one physical, tangible, visceral encounter with Jesus, and yet you're deeply devoted to him. And he says, as a result of that, you have this deep sense of joy. So with that, I just want to take a look at those three words, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. So number one, he describes this aspect of love. He says, again, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. One of the things that's deeply important to understand is that any relationship, no matter what it is, for it to be functional, as opposed to dysfunctional, it must have these two factors. It must have love and it must have trust. It doesn't even need to have like visibility. You don't even have to see that person, right? There's, there's a such thing as what we used to call LDLA, long distance love affair. You can actually have that with somebody that's living in another continent and still have a deep connected relationship with that person, though you've not seen them because Love, true love, is actually built upon these two important things. A relationship is built upon love and trust. So in other words, if you have love but not trust, meaning you don't trust that person, it's possible. It's possible to say, I'm deeply committed to this person, but I absolutely do not trust them because maybe they violated your trust. It's possible to have trust. I can trust them. They're a reliable human being. But love, nah. You break down any one of these areas, then you, your relationship implodes. It breaks apart. You must have love and you must have trust. And this is exactly what he's saying. You guys have both love and trust in Jesus. And as a result of that, that's creating this context of joy. We're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection by your culture around you. You are able to be poised and not fall to the wayside. Even though you may suffer great loss, you have a deep sense of stability about your life. So a couple things to think about. Number one is that Peter's audience, that one, they had never seen Jesus. Again, they'd never eaten a meal with him. They never sat under his teachings. They never walked along the Sea of Galilee with him. So again, they were very, very far away from Jesus. They were not even in that part of the world, though they had deep love and affection for Jesus. Number two, we see that they had faced tremendous pressure to deny Jesus by compromising their loyalty, ultimately to cave into these cultural norms. So this is what they're facing. This is kind of like the the climax, the climactic stress moment of like, what are they going to do? You know, when you're watching a movie, there's always some form of like tension that gets built up. This is the tension they're facing of like, how are they going to respond? You're sitting on the edge of your seat. Will they cave in? Will they give in? Will they become disloyal to the one whom they love? Will they give in to the social pressures and the cultural uh, societal norms? Or will they remain faithful to the one who loves them and the one to whom they have reciprocated that love, even though they've never seen him? And then thirdly, we see that uh, those for whom Jesus prayed were these people. Like, for example, John chapter 17, verse 20. And in the same fashion, this also includes you and I, by the way. Just listen to what Jesus said in his, what we call his high priestly prayer. Again, kind of like big 
religious language, but just listen to the way that Jesus prays for these people. Uh, if you want, want, you can keep notes, or if you're keeping notes, you can write down John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. It says this, I do not ask for these only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for those disciples uh, immediately, Peter, James, John, all those people that were close and connected to him. But he's saying, I'm not just simply praying for these guys. I'm also praying for those that will come to believe that are not here right now. This is no doubt a reference to what we're reading about right now, these people. And it also includes you. He says that they may be one just as you and I are one. Father, you are in me. I am in you. That they may also be one with us so that in the world, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23 says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me them even as you have loved me father i desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world so there's a lot of things to be said about this but i'm going to try to keep it as simple as can be what jesus is describing here is this deep sense of satisfying relationship that he has with the father and in this context, he's, he's praying, God, would you protect and keep safe those who will one day believe on me in that future place? Bring them into that same relationship that I have with you. Do you realize what's happening here? Have you ever noticed somebody that their relationship is so like deep and strong and healthy or a family member or somebody else that you know. Or maybe when you were a child growing up. When I was young, my parents divorced. And I remember there was one particular family. I was a young Christian, actually. And they, this family seemed to have it all together. They were an amazing family. They lived in Newport Beach. I grew up in Huntington Beach. So they were kind of wealthy. They had all this stuff that seemed to be so well together. They sat down. They had dinner with each other. And everything about their family looked pristine. I remember at one point being like, I want in I want in. I want to be part of that family that's together, that's not divorced, that's not, seems, it ends up that they end up getting divorced themselves. But the point of the matter is this, is that the reality is that we oftentimes want to be in on something that's highly functional and healthy and beautiful and good. And this is exactly what Jesus has with the Father. And he says, Father, I pray for those that are on the outside, that they would be brought into this thing of love and relationship. Jesus is praying for them, that they would be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. Again, this is why I would say Christianity, at its very core, it's not about ascribing to a set of principles or ideas or moral code. All of that comes, but it doesn't begin there. It begins with the knowledge of a relationship that you and I, we have deficiencies in our own life. We are broken. We have these areas of hardness inside of us that we want to be our self-owned person. We want to be and live in a way that I get to express who I am, the way that I want, when I want, how I want. And if anybody stands in the way, because this is the cultural narrative that says, if anybody stands in your way, just plow through them. Break the tyranny of anything that doesn't align with your inner person. But again, let's say, for example, you get that. Are you now happy? Are you satisfied? 
Now that you got to fully live in the indulgence of yourself expression, is heaven there? Is that it? Or does that even run its course? Does that even have an expiration date? Does that even have limited mileage? And I would suggest to you that absolutely it does. At some point it will fail. It may be in the honeymoon state where everything feels amazing. But at some point even that will fail. We are made. We are designed to have a relationship with the God that loves us. Made us for himself. And it's in that context that we find life. And this is exactly why Peter's writing to these people. He's like, look, you guys love Jesus even though you've never seen him. The second thing he says is that you trust him. You trust him. Listen to what he says again. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. The word belief literally is the word trust. Pistos is the Greek word. It means that we have this confidence in who he is. Loyalty is another word that you can think of this. You are loyal to this one that you've never even seen before. I wonder if when Peter is writing this, he was not reminded of his own imperfections, right? If you are familiar with the story of Peter, in fact, the very first week that we began to jump into this great book, uh, we looked at some of the life of Peter. And one of the things that we pointed out was that Peter, even though he was one of these guys that had a lot of passion, he was very excited about following Jesus. In fact, he's one of these guys that had a greater uh, opinion of himself than, than others, right? He saw himself as being this guy that's like, though everybody else will fail you, Jesus, I will never fail you. And then, you know, the next day, next few hours, Peter's like failing miserably. And I, and I wonder if when Peter's writing this, he's thinking, man, I saw Jesus. I ate with him. I touched him. I hugged him. And yet I still failed him. And here are these people. They've never done any of this. And yet they've remained faithful. They love him and they trust in him. We oftentimes live in a culture that says something like seeing is believing. There's this kind of mindset that says, you know, unless I can see a miracle, unless God shows himself to me, unless God shows up at the edge of my bed, then I will never, ever believe in him. There's kind of this mindset. It's kind of a quasi-scientific mindset that unless I can see, taste, touch, test his existence, I will refuse to believe and follow and give myself to this. And I, and I get that. I understand that. We are conditioned. We think in that context, in that construct. And I, if I would gently push back and just say there's many things I would presuppose that many of us have actually given ourselves to that we've never even seen. We just, we, we trust it. We know it's there. We have a relationship to it. But what I think the way the scripture describes this is that actually it's not about seeing as believing, but Christianity is the exact reverse of that. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. It sounds very counterproductive and it sounds the exact opposite. It almost even sounds like weird word games. But the fact of the matter is, this is exactly what I think is being described here. Believing is seeing, trusting, having confidence in this God that has given himself to us and trusting in him opens our eyes, our ability to be able to see and understand. And that leads lastly to my final thing, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts, is not only the word love, which he says, even though you've not seen him, you love him. Trust, 
even though you do not see him now, you trust and have confidence in him. Finally, he says the word joy. He says, and in this you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. This is, this is lofty. I mean, this is so big. Because on the one hand, he uses this word inexpressible. Each one of us might have a little bit of a variation of a translation. There's a reason for that. This is the only time in the entire Bible that particular Greek word actually appears, which makes it difficult to try to fully make sense of what word what, what does this word mean, and what other ways does this word in its context appear? We don't, we don't know that, because it doesn't appear any other Bible passage throughout the entire Bible, especially in the New Testament. But what scholars say is, is that this is a word that he may, may even be making up, that he's trying to use language, vocabulary, to describe a joy that's beyond just joy, right? This is a joy, a, a depth of expressiveness that's beyond a depth of expressiveness. And he's saying, this is the joy that you find yourself in the midst of, that God has brought upon you, God has brought you into. And then he goes on to say, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation. The word salvation, uh, we get the word satir, satirology, the study of salvation. The big idea behind this is that something that we give our the deliverance, maybe it is another way of thinking of this. He says the deliverance of your souls. The word soul, don't think of a detached, disembodied state. The word soul just simply means the sum total of yourself. Think body, soul, spirit, body, emotion, and who you are. That's the sum total of who you are. He's saying the deliverance of the sum total you. Just pause and think about that. What in your life right now does the sum total you need to be delivered from? For some, it might be crippling anxiety. For others, alcohol, substance abuse. For others, it may be this need to endlessly be in a relationship. Maybe it's this ache of longing for something that you still have not yet found. Just passions constantly leading, misleading you, like a broken GPS down a path that you will never, ever, ever obtain what it is that ache inside you is longing for. Deliverance. For each of us, it's different. Maybe it's a trauma from the past. But what Peter is trying to suggest is that this relationship with your maker, Savior God, is a relationship that will ultimately bring about your deliverance of the sum total you. This, by the way, is really good news. He's saying, you love this Jesus whom you've never seen. You're devoted to this Jesus whom you've never encountered. His whole point is just know that what God is working in your life if Peter could say it in these words, he would say, I promise you, you will never, ever regret being faithful to the one who is faithful to you. C.S. Lewis describes a lot about the subject matter of joy. And I want to finish with a couple of thoughts. Uh, he describes the word joy. In fact, there's a book that he wrote on joy. You can just check it out online. I would highly recommend checking it out. It's actually the story of his conversion from atheism to becoming a follower of Jesus. And I think it's really essential because he describes his journey to God was actually a journey from atheism through joy to God. And one of the things that he described in his great book, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. I totally agree with that. 
to maybe put it in another context, at the very core, the very heart of who God is, is this deeply joyful being within this relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. is this overflowing fountain of joy of which God says, I want you in there. I'm praying for you that you would not turn to the sewage of this world and somehow think it will satisfy you. Yeah, it might give you a little bit of moisture to give you another day, but it will not provide a deep sense of satisfaction. There is a difference. Gutter water may keep you from death, from not drinking, but you might die from secondary issues. The point of the matter is, is what, C.S. Lewis is describing that joy is this part of what God's up to in this world. Uh, the Old Testament, throughout actually the whole Bible, the word joy or rejoice appears at some 160 times, if not even more, in various translations of that particular word. Psalm 4, verse 7 says this, God, you have put gladness in my heart. Psalm 5, verse 11 says, let us, let all who take refuge in you... Uh, let them forever sing for joy. Psalm 9 verse 2, it says this, I will be glad and I will rejoice in you and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. The big idea is joy. Joy. If joy, listen, in summary, if joy is truly the serious business of heaven, then it would logically stand to follow that joy is also a serious business here on earth. within the operating systems that govern this earth. In other words, creating parodies of the true music of joy that comes from heaven. And as I mentioned, that BBC documentary called The Century of Self, and if it's true that we are indeed happiness machines, then you have this perfect coalescing of human beings that crave and long for some form of satisfaction and joy or happiness in a system that will feed you everlasting happiness. Would you agree with that? But at some point, that system will fail and it will continue to produce products that will never give us what our hearts deeply long for in the first place, of which God himself says, I will give. So in conclusion, Jesus ultimately is the only one which is the claim of scripture that will give us what our hearts truly need and long for. He is the one that gives joy, gives satisfaction. So I don't know where you're at and how you even think about this or process this, but my invitation to you in closing, as we go to sing and as we go to take of the bread and of the cup, to be reminded of this love that God has for you. To maybe put it into another context, to what degree would that thing which you have given yourself to be willing to give itself back to you in self-sacrifice? What I would suggest that most of the things that we are deeply giving ourselves to in this world, it's, it's not a complete cycle. In other words, we give ourselves eagerly to receive something back. But that thing which is giving us something back has a limited cycle. In other words, at some point it will expire. When it expires, it will make demands upon us that we cannot give or deliver. Contrast that with the gospel. Jesus 
promises eternal life, wholeness, deliverance. And in return says, I will give myself entirely for you, for your brokenness. This is the love that Peter is saying, don't betray, don't walk away, don't leave this love in exchange for a momentary pat on the back by a culture that will fade away. So I don't know how this hits us, but my invitation to you this morning would maybe be to do an assessment upon your heart and ask, what are the things that possess your deepest affection? Why don't we all stand? We're going to sing. We'll wrap it up with a song and communion. But before we sing, I want to just take a moment and pause. And maybe for some of you, this is a time for you to just confess to God your love to him. Maybe just to say, God, I love you. I need you. For some, that might be really hard. Because we prefer to be more religious than we are in love. So we do religious stuff. We go to church. We're like, oh, I'm cool with going to church. I'm cool with sitting in the parking lot. I'm cool with kind of casually singing a song. But the idea of like confessing, professing love, that's kind of like the opposite of hyper-masculinity. Whatever. But again, I would ask, is our aim to be hyper-masculine or to be people that have rightly responding to the God that has given himself to us? Because again, even something like hypermasculinity has an expiration date. It will fail you, and when it breaks, the limited miles that it offers you will not leave you a whole human being. But Jesus will. So maybe right now, just in the quietness of your own heart, just confess. And if you don't even have words to say, just as Dan had exhorted us earlier, Sometimes that's where singing comes in. It just becomes the means by which we express what we cannot express. That's why music is such a gift from God. It helps us to articulate that which we can't articulate. It helps give words to emotions and feelings and thoughts and experiences that we otherwise just don't know how to put into words. So let's lift up our voices. And then we'll partake of communion.